my name is Dario Hasenstab. I have a degree in international affairs and I'm here with Balder Hagrids, a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together we're bursting the Western bubble. Today, we will analyze how to understand development aid through the lens of the Western bubble. Because while Western societies have many strengths and significant weaknesses, in order to analyze these, we use the concept of the Western bubble. Boulder, um, one almost last time, I believe, um, we will release uh, the listeners of this shortly. What is the Western bubble? It is the process in which people in Western democracies live under the delusion that their system is the ultimate goal of humanity and that because of that there is an inherent superiority over other systems. This then leads to both blindness to our own internal weakness as well as destructive behavior towards those living in different systems. Every episode of this podcast follows the same structure. In order to analyze each topic, we answer the following five questions. What are the facts, where we provide a factual basis for our analysis? What is the bubble, where we analyze the overarching problem of Western delusion? What is the personal bias, where we see how the leaders, especially Western leaders, are affected by non-rational factors? What is the damage, where we look into um, how and why the Western bubble is harmful? And finally, what is the future, where we lay out how each, how each topic might develop down the line? If you would like to know more about how this podcast started or who we are, make sure to listen to our introduction episode. This being said, uh, let's get to it. Development aid is a type of foreign aid given by governments and other agencies to support the economic, environmental, social and political development of developing countries. As opposed to short-term uh, intentions of humanitarian aid, development aid has a long-term agenda. About 80% of the aid measured by the OECD comes from government sources, in total uh, roughly $130 billion uh, last year, while the remaining 20% come from individuals, businesses, foundations or NGOs. OECD countries uh, are responsible for the vast majority of aid provided worldwide, and the top three donor countries in total billions from 2010 to 2019 were the United States, uh, Germany and the United Kingdom. Uh, meanwhile, the top three receiving countries in the same time frame were Afghanistan, India and Ethiopia. Historically, the concept of development aid goes back to the colonial era at the turn of the 20th century, in particular to the British policy of colonial development. However, the beginning of modern development aid is rooted in post-World War II times and the Cold War. It was launched as a large-scale aid program by the United States in 1947, called the Marshall Plan, which was concerned with strengthening the ties to Western, Europe, Western European states and to contain the influence of the USSR. The current sector comes from the area of decolonization, when structures were set up to support local populations. Moving on to, to the second category, uh, what, is, what is the bubble? Uh, before, I mean, before, we want to, before we discuss what is the Western bubble here, I think uh, it is important that we discuss our own bubble, because as I always mentioned in the introduction, I'm a former student of yours and you actually taught a class on uh, aid and development to me. And um, I, I mean, I can... I can say so much that it was a very critical class uh, on aid and development and I think listeners will notice because we uh, it's subject to, to our podcast here um, so that's kind of our own little bubble and we will both be careful not to not to rant too much about the development world um, but then Balder why do you even teach a class on aid and development uh, are you are you some form of expert <laughs> uh, well I, I used to be uh, a long time ago it's, it's how I started my international relations career and um, while doing my PhD um, I was offered a uh, position first to just write some articles for a website of a think tank that was 
owned led by one of my professors and then eventually that led me to um, enter the development sector as a 26 27 year old um, where um, they invited me to become part of the organization and I started becoming a consultant uh, on development projects I became an evaluator and so for at least six, seven years, I was very much at the heart. I was part of this this aid culture, right? I, I was there evaluating projects on behalf of European um, and international donors. And, and so I could observe everything. But I also very much was inside of the bubble without clearly seeing my role in it. So it's very good that you talk about biases because I think that right now it's fair to say that I walk around with a certain guilt complex because of the money I made from this sector for a long time. And unfortunately, when I then walk into a classroom full of students, I try to make them avoid the same mistakes that I made. Um, and then, so before we then fully dive into the bubble, we also want to mention that, I mean, of course, we are, we're not in general against international cooperation uh, and, and against any of these efforts, but it, it's very much about analyzing the mistakes that stem from a bubble, um, the development bubble, but also the Western bubble. Yeah, exactly. I, I think it's very important to realize for listeners here that there are sort of two streams of criticism, critical thinking against um, against the aid sector. And one is the one that hopefully we engage in, the one that is just analyzing how to, what the patterns are, what the impact is, what uh, what the incentives are for actors involved, and then say, does this work? Is this actually a good way to manage our world, to spend our resources, etc.? The other one is a slightly darker political movement, I would argue, which comes from typically the extreme right, uh, which uh, goes along the lines of why should we spend money on foreigners if we have so many problems at home? Why should a American spend money on people in Somalia if there are so many poor Americans? And that is a, a line of thought that needs to be rejected for the simple reason that we live in a globe and international cooperation is a brilliant thing. The idea of the world working together is hugely important. We can't live in our own national bubble. So our criticism doesn't stem from the idea that there's something wrong with countries and populations all over the world working together. We should only celebrate that kind of thing. And then now let's jump right into it. Um, Balder, what is the bubble? Um, I mean, it's, uh, I, I mean, because I feel like there's not one unitary bubble. There's, there has to be a few ones, right, inside this overarching development sector. Yeah, and in many ways, I would argue that, that, that the aid sector is a brilliant example of the Western bubble in general, right? A lot of the elements that we've discussed in previous episodes are very clearly visible in the aid sector. And here it's probably useful to distinguish between the geopolitical bubble, the West being the West, its neo-colonial self. I'm sure we'll unpack that. Um, then there's the organizational managerial bubble, which uh, incentives exist within organizations, donors, within the aid sector, governments or large foundations, uh, as well as NGOs, what incentives exist for them to operate? Who do they respond to? What do they count as success? And then there's the very individual bubble, right? Westerners, if not the whole aid sector consists of Westerners, but it's very still, very much still Western-led. Uh, 
Westerners believing in their own moral imperative and, and believing that they're actually making the world a better place and, and the impact that it has on their operations. So starting with the governmental uh, sector, I mean, I read this out in the fact sheet that the kind of the first form of modern aid uh, was the Marshall Plan from the United States. And I, I mean, I already, the, I, I'm just going to read uh, the, the second half of the sentence again, is that it, it was concerned with strengthening ties to West Euro, Western European states and to contain the influence of the USSR. I mean, this gives the governmental uh, perspective um, an immediate agenda, right? A policymaking agenda. Yeah. Um, so international cooperation, and in this case, foreign aid, uh, always has a selfish inter- uh, selfish aspect to it. It doesn't have to be completely selfish, but there's always a element of what are we getting out of this? And there's nothing wrong with that. When you cooperate, when you and I cooperate together, I get something out of it and you get something out of it. In the case of the Marshall Plan, the, the geopolitics were very clear. The Soviet Union had to be stopped from an American perspective. How do you do that? By strengthening Western Europe. And Western Germany... France, the UK, they needed to be able to build up their societies, their militaries in order to be a buffer. That's that's a, that's a very clear element. And there's, there's in itself nothing wrong with that. It's just important to recognize that, right? It, it's important to identify that and do not to behave as if it was just the United States out of the goodness of its heart, helping Europeans um, without any other motives behind it, without any ulterior, mot- ulterior motives. Uh, the one thing that is important to mention with the Marshall Plan, and we did mention this in a previous episode, if I recall correctly, is that you're absolutely right that it is the basis of many types of thinking with respect to foreign aid, but it was a very specific situation. It was a situation where you had European societies that before the war, before 1939, were doing pretty well and had large institutions, well-functioning institutions, were on their democratic path, um, had good uh, systems of taxation, had good education levels. And all that the United States needed to do after the Second World War was pump money into those existing systems, which is not comparable to, let's say, the Democratic Republic of Congo in 1960-1970, which is a very different type of uh, problem where it's not just a matter of throwing some money at it and everything will start working again, right? So that, that, that comparison between the Marshall Plan and more modern foreign aid projects can be very deceptive. And, I mean, it is problematic. It's because, and, and this was, I think it was in, 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 the, in the last episode even, in the one on, 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 US, uh, on US foreign policy, and I think specifically the fall of US foreign policy, um, is that... Uh, the Marshall Plan was so successful is that nowadays we always talk about, oh, we need a Marshall Plan for Ukraine. We need a Marshall Plan for Africa. Um, basically, the same way of thinking applied to completely different contexts. Um, but, uh, okay, so here we have then the governmental level where, I mean, so first we had we had the Marshall Plan and then, I mean, the, the second step of, of modern aid that I outlined in the fact sheet was then uh, after efforts of decolonization, um, there was, and we, we called this, support to local populations but that was us laying out the facts but when it comes to level of analysis there were other other intentions behind this no, absolutely i mean if, if you 
so the the modern sector exists in its form and it has changed over time since the 1960s and uh, it is very very clear that even though the story was oh those countries are now becoming independent but they still need our benevolent help this is very much from a colonial mindset that keep in mind that if you asked a european in the 1940s 1950s they were from their perspective from their bubble and it's an incredible bubble and it requires quite a lot of uh, mental uh, intellectual gymnastics to get there but they were helping their colonies right they believed in their when they looked in the mirror that they were doing good to those poor people who couldn't help themselves then these poor people are becoming independent and then they say, oh, but they can't, they can't be independent without our support, without our help. So we need to continue providing them with support. That is the Western, that is the Western mindset. And it, it seems kind of insane to even talk about that in 2022, because nobody in their right frame of mind can look at history and think that European colonial powers were actually benevolent to their colonies. But, but that was the mindset. In reality, though, there is very much this control element, right? They're becoming independent, but we still want to make sure that we can get access to their resources. We want to control their politics. We don't want to, them to fall into the hands of the Soviet Union. There's a nice Marshall Plan um, uh, parallel. And uh, therefore, by providing them with economic aid, we can influence the local situation and we can use that to our geopolitical benefit. That's, that is very clearly a pattern in the start of the aid sector and one that is still visible in 2022. And I think there's no better example than the Democratic Republic of Congo for this, previously Zaire, when it became independent from Belgium, where it actually had its own democratically elected leader Lumumba in uh, 1960 and within a year you had 6,000 Belgian mercenaries <laughs> helping and I'm doing a quotation mark here that's something that you can't see in a podcast um, uh, helping the Zaire people um, to stabilize but in reality Belgium continuing its access to their natural resources and getting rid of Lumumba within a year who got then executed and since then Zaire and the DRC have been dictatorships, right? Um, authoritarian regimes. That is a very good example of Europeans in their minds telling themselves we are actually here to support them, but in reality just wanting to control their former colonies. And that's called neocolonialism. Hmm. So governments have their own agenda and it's, it's usually resulting in, in neocolonialism. But then what's the organizational perspective? Because it's um, I mean, so, so you have these uh, development agencies, uh, which, are, which are governmental agencies, but you also have the corporations or the NGOs. What's their perspective on, on development aid and what's their bubble? So the, the aid sector is really interesting in this sense, and it's relatively unique because it's a cross-border beast, right? It, 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 it involves almost every country on this planet. And the organizations purport to support local populations. If you ask anyone working in the aid sector, what is your goal? What is your eventual objective for your organization, for your business, for your foundation, for your government department? It is to provide support to vulnerable populations or populations that aren't vulnerable, but to help them develop economically 
um, towards a better future. Unfortunately, in reality, these organizations don't have those populations as their clients or as their final arbitrators. So when I say I'm going to help that local population, that is my eventual goal, but that local population doesn't evaluate my success, isn't my client, and it doesn't have to be capitalist, it can be different ways, but isn't the one who in the end decides whether I've done a good job or not, there's a problem. In reality, my client is the people who provide me with the money. So if I'm an NGO, I will argue that I am helping local people, but in reality, I'm trying to please the donor. Because without the donor, I won't continue to exist. Um, so the incentive mechanism at a managerial organizational level is very much one where on paper you focus on one thing, but in reality you focus on the other. And these two things are not aligned. Very often a donor wants different things than the actual local population. Now, and there, there have been ways in which people are trying to improve this, but uh, it's actually very hard to change it if you know that the existence of your job or the existence of your organization depends on the happiness of a second party that is not part of your formal agenda. So what would be an example of a donor um, having different interests and goals than the local population? Well, very clearly, for example, uh, religious or political objectives are very common. So what you would have, for example, is a um, American foundation who um, wants to provide dem democratic ideals at a local level. And locals um, are not really interested in the politics behind it. They, they're just interested in a school being built or they're just interested in roads being built or some um, job training program or whatever it is. But in order to access that, they also have to sort of play this political game because that's what the donor wants. So what you then get is that the NGO starts telling the locals, okay, we're going to help you here, but you also have to have lessons on democracy or on freedom. And there, then the evaluation of that project will not be what the locals want. The locals just want to know, did the school get built? Did we get our job training? But the donor wants to say, okay, how did we, how did we democratize this society? How did we actually put liberal values into this society? I mean, one example, I think I can safely mention this, uh, is of a organization that I had to evaluate in the Balkans a long time ago. And this, the NGO that I was working for just basically was an expert. They, they just wanted to build buildings they were good at building buildings but at the time the spanish government which was um, financing this were all on this hype train with respect to peace building and so the balkans uh, 1990s early 2000s recovering from the violence that had taken place and so this organization in order to get the funds from the spanish government to build its school or build its uh, infrastructure they had to develop this whole plan based on peace building, even though that wasn't their expertise in any way, shape or form. And in the end, I as an evaluator had a, of the project had a really tough job because am I going to evaluate their effectiveness, their, their ability to actually build what they want to build? Or 
do I have to evaluate what the donor wanted them to do, which is bring peace and prosperity and, and again, democratic liberal values and all singing, all the people in the Balkans holding hands and singing Kumbaya. Is, 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 that, is, is that what I'm evaluating here? And that's a very clear example of how organizationally the process got corrupted and the actual effectiveness becomes very hard to measure then. And this leaves us with the with the last uh, level, uh, meaning the individual level. And so, in what ways are are individuals stuck in this development and in the Western bubble? So, if you are working at an NGO in Paris or London or Madrid, your day to day life is just you go into the office, you do your work, and you go home. And there is a st still probably a sense that you're internally that you're doing something for to make the world better you are your job is morally superior to that of working in the financial sector or working in any other uh, commercial sector because you are working on aiding aid you're working on helping poor people around the world right that's what you tell yourself but your day-to-day -day job is just getting into the office going out etc where it's much more visible is individuals going to local populations. Actually, an American or a European walking into a town in the DRC or walking into a town in South Sudan. Because there, they not only represent from their own personal perspective a moral good, they're, they're, they are probably telling themselves, hey, I could have worked in the private sector and earned a lot more money, which is a questionable statement, but it's good to tell you that yourself that, right? Uh, like, you know, it's, it's just my choice to be here for a relatively low wage, but I could earn a lot more somewhere else. Um, so they walk in with that mindset. I am here doing good and I am somehow praiseworthy for my actions being here. But not just that, I represent a superior system and this is very much the western bubble right i come from the united states or i come from a european country where we have a brilliant liberal democratic capitalist system and these poor people here at the local level just have to learn how to do things our way which is exactly the thing that this podcast series is about and it's incredibly visible that it's incredibly visible when you are there and you look around at all those Westerners. And so I have been there and I still feel guilty about it. Right. And I, uh, you'd be amazed, by the way, by how well some people, including myself at some point, are being paid to be there. So it's not all voluntary um, doing good. When you look around at those Westerners working in the aid sector at the local level, the air of superiority and the air of believing that they are gods among men while walking there is, is sometimes astounding. And if you look at certain figures, for example, of the people walking around in Afghanistan, I don't, I haven't seen the latest figures, but about five years ago, um, they were still valid. The huge majority can be categorized as white middle-aged men who walk around with a god complex essentially who go there and at home they don't get respected by anyone back home in new york or back home in london nobody cares about them but in afghanistan they can walk around as people representing a superior system representing money having a having a lot of influence over local population and therefore 
being incredibly biased in their own actions. And you could you can easily imagine how that leads to horrible situations of abusive power dynamics and all that. And I mean, because we've seen this, and this was a, a reoccurring uh, subject in, in the Ada development class you, you taught, um, we've seen this at its worst in Haiti, uh, right? Where you, you had ex exactly those people um, moving into positions of power and then horribly abusing this. Yeah, so this is, I mean, it's to, to, to make it a little bit simplistic and stereotypical, but think about this 50-year-old guy who has a desk job somewhere in, in New York and has just gone through painful divorce because his wife left him for someone more attractive and more intelligent. And this guy now gets offered a job to work in Haiti to um, rebuild society after an earthquake. That guy goes there and all of a sudden everyone around him seems to admire him. Not in reality, but that's his feeling. That's his feeling because he walks around, he has the money, he has the influence, he has to make big decisions. He represents this big donor overseas. Uh, he lives in this big house where poor people around him uh, live in little huts because of the earthquake that destroyed their houses. Uh, he has the power to ruin people's lives or to make lives better and then obviously that person is gonna feel way more important and way more powerful than he has any right to feel at home disrespected but all of a sudden here he's like a god and at that moment you, you get those hor horrific stories of child abuse of rape of um, and, and it doesn't have to be even that explicit, right? Just simple pressure on, on local populations to behave in a certain way. And, and he won't even believe that he's doing anything wrong because he can tell himself that he's there to make Haiti a better place. He can tell himself that he is sacrificing a better wage at home in order to be there. And therefore, uh, he doesn't even look in the mirror and feel anything dodgy about what he's doing uh, as an evaluator this was even more so because as an evaluator of projects for listeners who don't know this uh, so a project is carried out by an ngo or is carried out by an executive party on behalf of a donor and then an external evaluator flies in and has to see whether all the targets have been met and what has gone well and what has gone badly so i wasn't just this guy walking around i was a guy who had to write a report say Okay, money is going to continue or money will stop, which gives me, gave me even greater power, right? At least um, on, on paper. And, and that feeling of being treated like someone who can make or break the future careers of people around you is, is, is very clearly present there. And I've shown pictures in class, which again, on a podcast can't, can't happen, unfortunately, but I've shown pictures of where I was welcomed in villages with the whole village standing in front of me and, and, and a whole groups of children preparing songs for me, singing. And I was just a 28-year-old who had absolutely no clue what he was doing there and, and, and was just earning a lot of money for doing something pretty basic and pretty unimportant really but these people believed that their economic future depended on me and as a result you get treated in such a way shouldn't this be obvious to someone as in who walks into a room as an evaluator 
Well, no, I, I'm sure that that is something that if we have listeners who are actually working in the sector and who believe in the work that they're doing, they will tell themselves, yeah, but I'm not like that. Or this is, you're exaggerating. And of course, here for the purpose of this episode, we have to exaggerate a little, or at least simplify a little bit because we don't have enough time to go into all the complexities. But it is astounding how our human psychology justifies our own behavior when we can see it being problematic in the behavior of others, right? It's much easier for us to criticize others than to critically evaluate ourselves. And so what happens, and I certainly did this, but I told myself while I was walking around and earning all this money um, and and sort of playing God, I told myself, yeah, but I I won't fall into the trap. I won't do anything abusive. I I, I can see how others could do it, but I'm I'm here for the right reasons and I'm just going to be professional and all that. And yet it's going to be very, very easy to get into dynamics that you don't easily observe about yourself, right? And and, and so I think the, the ability to be self-delusional in human beings is much higher than we think. And, and it's very clear that whereas you have a conversation with people who work in the sector, they say, yeah, yeah, this is indeed a problem. You're right, but we do things differently. And then when you actually start observing them, they don't do things differently, but they just don't see it about themselves. Now we've discussed uh, the individual bubble after we already discussed the government, the governmental bubble and the organizational bubble. Um, I mean, part of the individual is obviously the personal bias, uh, leading us to our third category. Uh, what is the personal bias? Um, and here, I think it, it will be important for us um, to discuss kind of how helping is power. Um, because we, we discussed this earlier a little bit, but I think we, we need to put some more focus on this, how as soon as you help someone, there's immediately a perception of power involved. Yeah, the, the word helping is very problematic, right? And that's why cooperation, I mentioned this before, if you and I cooperate, I get something out of it, you get something out of it, and it's hopefully a productive uh, dynamic for both of us. And, and that is something that leads to constructive good outcomes, when I know what I get and you know what you get and we're happy that both of us benefit from it. But when we help, it is basically when I help you, I am actually saying you have to be grateful for, to me. Um, I am here doing good. You are vulnerable. You are weak. I am strong. I know and, better. And I exactly. I know better. I represent a lot of good stuff. You represent a lot of bad stuff. And this dynamic is not an equal one. I am superior, you're inferior. Now, when you then translate that to the aid sector, that's very, very visible, right? Where it is all about pretending that there is no mutual benefit, even though we know from political perspectives and from personal perspectives there clearly is. But it is all about me as an individual out of the goodness of my heart, Mother Teresa comes to mind here, right? There was this pretense that Mother Teresa was out of the goodness of her heart. She spends her time on the poor people in India. Whereas in reality, that's of course not true, but that is a huge, hugely powerful bubble that we live in. Mm. Um, and something that, uh, especially when we talk about the personal bias, uh, because uh, I mean I mentioned this earlier, is something that happens to young people of my generation in particular 
is this feeling of just going, just traveling around the world for one year because I'm done with high school now and I deserve to see the world for personal development or whatever. Um, An alternative to this is, oh, let me go and help. Let me hope, uh, let me go and volunteer somewhere. And uh, I mean, during during my time at university and during your class, I think I even wrote an essay about this, uh, about volunteerism, Um, how... There are volunteers who are going out into the world and it's really just tourism because, and this is how this generally goes, is then you have someone, usually middle-class student from the Western world, United States or Europe, going into a small African town to teach English for one month, believing that, oh, I'm going to change that person's world, but even worse, usually even paying an organization to do so. Uh, because this is something that almost happened to me at the age of 17. Um, I wanted, I, I seriously considered um, going to Costa Rica for three months uh, to improve my Spanish, but also to help something, something with the rainforest. Um, and the price for this would have been 3,600 euros. But instead of having this money then go somewhere, um, somewhere good, no, it's going into his administration stuff. It's going into feeding me, into making sure that I have health care and access to everything. Um, just so that I can walk around in Costa Rica, feel good about myself and say, oh, I've saved the rainforest for three months and I learned Spanish on the side. Absolutely. And it's not just about you feeling good uh, about yourself. It is you advancing your career. It looks great in your CV. It makes you look interesting at home. Uh, It gives you wonderful, personally wonderful experiences. It broadens your horizons in certain ways, right? Uh, And you do all of that. So you strengthen your own life in many ways and you're willing to pay 3600 euros for that but you do that while saying yeah but i'm sacrificing myself look at what a good person i am for going there and helping those poor people at a local level and so the 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 psychological dynamics that are at the at the basis of your behavior then are very very deep and very powerful but we don't recognize it so if if you were to say i am just gonna go to costa rica because it's good for me and i'm grateful that i can go there because it it strengthens my life and and all that and it's wonderful and i hope that the people will uh, be okay with me being there that that would be a whole different dynamic than you saying i'm there to help other people and i'm ignoring the fact that really the person i'm helping is myself Mm. And then to make to make matters worse, because social media and our generation is as selfish as we are, um, then it comes to posting about it on social media. I mean, if I if I see these posts on social media where there's I, I sometimes it's even my friends, but then you have a a, a white person, a European person uh, coming to an African town teaching English, and then you have these pictures of them surrounding by surrounded by black children who are all cheering and laughing and happy. And then there's one of them on their arm and everyone is smiling and then posting these pictures on social media. And even worse, as you already mentioned, it's also to further someone's career going then further and posting it on LinkedIn saying, Oh, I've had such a transformative experience and now I'm a changed person. I understand what these people need and what they, uh, I understand their sorrows. And I, I lived with them even worse. I lived with them, like them for, for a significant amount of time. Now I know what it means to suffer that that to me seems to, I mean it might not be the most damaging part but to me it seems like this is the most toxic part well and it's completely deluded right it's 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 completely delusional it's that it reminds me of those initiatives where incredibly rich people say i want to know what it feels like to be poor and so i'm gonna i'm gonna live on a budget of 500 euros a month for six months 
and then I will I will know poverty. But of course, you don't know poverty because you don't have the insecurity. You can always go back to uh, your comfortable lifestyle if you want to, and and uh, it has nothing to do with the realities that actually poor people live in. If you go there uh, for two months. And then you go back and you say, I know what they are, what they are about. I understand them now. Then you're completely deluded about yourself because your dynamic with them has not been that of an equal. Your dynamic of that uh, with them has not been um, you aligning yourself to them, but rather them aligning themselves towards you. They adjust to you. You don't adjust to them. And, and it becomes a very delusional exercise and 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 that's why the aid sector in many ways is such a microcosm of the western bubble at large that we discuss right um which leads us perfectly to the fourth category um, what's the damage and here we divide this into damages on a macro level and damages on a micro level um what are the ones on a, on a macro level well so you've got first of all the geopolitics um through the aid, the aid sector is a sector that allows an awful lot of geopolitics. And geopolitics, I mean, countries, governments achieving um, selfish, if you like, self-centered aims uh, to strengthen their country relative to to that of other countries. Um, ge geopol Geopolitical aims are being facilitated by the aid sector. The aid sector allows you to pretend to be there for the other country, but in reality to achieve your own goals. And a good example of that is uh, we'll provide you with this aid package for education, for, for young children in your communities. But by the way, after we sign this contract with you, you need to have a call with our multinationals who, who have seen some oil wells that they're interested in, right? It is this, it is this vague uh, connection that the aid sector allows governments to create with locals in order to achieve their goals. And that becomes very damaging very, very quickly. Um, Currently, Sub-Saharan Africa is a battleground between Western powers and China when it comes to natural resources, when it comes to cultural impact, and the aid sector is a tool for that power, especially from the Western perspective. The Chinese are a little bit clearer about, hey, we just want your natural resources. What do we pay to get it? They're, they're, they're a little bit more simple, straightforward, less hypocritical. But the West still builds on this image that it has of itself as the do-gooders, the ones who are here to make the world a better place. And in the meantime, they're advancing their own strategic goals in developing countries, which is incredibly harmful for those countries. And it's also in the long term harmful for the image of the West, because the West is becoming increasingly exposed as complete hypocrites, which allows a country like China to slowly take over global dynamics. And then the, the, the second part uh, when it comes to, to macro damages is, and I want to be careful here because when I call this a waste of resources, uh, as, we, as we mentioned in the beginning, this is not saying that all development and aid is, is wasteful and whether development, um, development aid is a good or bad thing, we will, we will assess later on. Um, but isn't it also an enormous waste of resources, especially when we look at Afghanistan now? I mean, you. I mean, Afghans was the was the top receiver of aid in the last uh, last decade, uh, 30, 37 or thirty eight billion dollars, and look where the country is now. They're 
it does not seem like anything has changed or, or anything has significantly improved, especially not if you take into account, okay, what else could have could have been achieved with this money if it had if it had been spent in a better way? Yeah, so I mean, Afghanistan is of course absolutely worst example, and we, you can you can find good examples of effective aid spending as well, obviously. But Afghanistan is is an example where billions and billions and billions, hundreds of billions even, of uh, euros dollars have been spent without any significant long term impact. Some micro impact here and there, but no long-term macro impact. And that is important. And I think in general, you could make this case about the aid sector. So the aid sector has real difficulty in showing its positive impact. And you could argue, well, that is just because it's very hard to measure. And by the way, there's a whole army of experts dedicated and being paid a lot of money to find ways to measure aid impact. Right. Uh, if anyone who works in the sector knows the incredible administrative hassle to go through with all kinds of logical framework to assess what they're achieving, because everyone understands that that the aid sector is terrible in, in showing what it has actually achieved, because we don't we just don't know. The aid sector not being able to explain how it has made the world a better place overall is a huge problem because money is valuable. And with that, I mean that it's not just neutral to spend money and then not to be able to show that it has had an impact because that money could have spent in been spent in other ways that would have been productive. Taxpayers' money, foundation money, whatever. Uh, if you say, well, we are saving lives currently in... Afghanistan or Iraq or Somalia or wherever by spending this money? Sure, but at what cost? Because with those resources, you could spend, you could save the lives of many others in other situations, right? Um, if we can spend a million euros on saving a child's life, most people would say, well, saving a child's life is the most important thing morally that we can do. So of course we have to do that. Yeah, but if that million euros can save a hundred children's lives elsewhere, in, for example, children's hospital somewhere in Brooklyn, then you have a real moral conundrum there. And, and, and so the aid sector has been terrible, terrible, terrible at explaining how it actually has a long-term positive impact. And the reality is that it's almost impossible to show it because of the huge complexity of what it's involved in and the lack of client-supplier relation because the locals don't actually assess, are not the ones who assess the impact on their lives. It's the donors who assess the impact on the lives of locals. Hmm. And then moving on to the, the micro damages cost. Um, and so, I, I mean, into mind comes at first, obviously, the local communities. Is this, is it causing, see, because this was a question I always had during your class. Um, and I think this is already going into the evaluation. <clears throat> you have all these damages cost, um, especially on a macro level. Um, and let's say, ah, okay, so there's certain, like there's a, there's a difficult power dynamic going on between uh, the donor and, and the receiver. But in the end, whether a school, like a school has been built and yes, people are being taught about democracy one session, but is that damage overall? Because like in the end, you could say, I mean, if you, if, if you do it, uh, if you create a mathematical equation, you could claim that, that they are better off than before. Yeah, and if you... A listener who works in the aid sector or who has donated a lot of 
uh, her money to the aid sector uh, could now send in a list of a hundred or a thousand aid projects that at least from what we can tell had a good positive impact on local communities. You can make a very long list of projects that probably had a good impact. I as an evaluator saw projects from as far as I could tell were actually very positive projects. Um, water tanks in southern India which just helped local communities that didn't have running water and it helped them in many many different ways. Not everything was perfect about it but there are but there were clear benefits. Whether it was completely efficient is a different thing but sure. So you're absolutely right that there are you can make this list of positive impact projects. Now, there's one caveat there that it's very hard to measure secondary effects. It's very hard to measure, even in those positive projects, to measure what the long-term politics of it is. For example, you help one town with running water, but how about the next town? Do they lose out because all of a sudden they're no longer competitive because they don't have the same access to water as the town you just helped, right? They're, they're, it's, it's very hard to actually isolate um, correctly the impact of your project. Having said that, anyone who doesn't like the sector can also send us a list of a thousand projects that have been absolutely terrible, just really, really bad. As a, and I'm not even talking about abuse by the sector, like the Haiti example that you that you just gave, but also uh, that we're supposed to do one thing and that then led to all kinds of horrible secondary circumstances, like um, an irrigation project that then took water away from villagers elsewhere and led to a drought elsewhere, or um, a housing project that took away the forest necessary for um, wildlife or the other way around a forestry project that took away the agricultural lands for people to make a living of leading to starvation there are you can make a very very long list of absolutely terrible projects um, that had terrible impacts now our question is the problem is how do you balance those two that good list versus that bad list and we don't have a way to balance it. We don't have a way to actually measure what the overall impact is. And you can't you can't look at the macro picture for micro effects because you don't know what it would be like in a parallel universe without aid. Um, would Africa uh, over the past uh, 60 years have been better off if no aid had been given at all? My, my gut instinct tells me yes. It would have been better if the aid sector hadn't existed at all. But I don't have any way to prove that because I can't look into the parallel universe where that has happened because that just doesn't exist from our reality. And so um, the problem is that, yes, you can point at good projects, but that doesn't mean that the aid sector is a legitimate sector in terms of actual long-term impact in our world. See, and one of the... One of the thoughts that I personally found most convincing in your class is that you make these communities, but as well the countries uh, that are receiving aid dependent, that you rob them of an opportunity to either develop this themselves or that at some point aid dries up. We saw this during COVID. During the beginning of COVID, suddenly money had to be spent elsewhere. Um, so so aid and development like paths dried up. And suddenly communities that have become dependent on, on the constant stream of aid um, were suffering even more uh, than before. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's not just that economic dependence, but also political. And this goes back all the way to the to the origin, to the to the beginning of the modern aid sector, right? Where it was kind of on, based on that dependence, where that's exactly, explicitly or implicitly, what European societies wanted. They wanted those newly independent African or Southeast Asian countries to continue to be dependent on Europeans. And that is very damaging um, for many reasons, not just for the resilience aspect that you mentioned, that if something goes wrong, then all of a sudden they've got nothing to stand on, but also because that allows these Western societies to impose their will on those local populations. If you don't do this, we will withdraw, and then all of a sudden people will starve again in your societies. So after you, you already outlined that it's incredibly difficult to establish any, I mean, any final judgment on whether age or is, I mean, any specific project has been successful or not. Uh, then let me ask this question um, that will break it down to three options. Has, has the development aid then been good, neutral or bad? Um, here, you have to now break down incredibly complex industry uh, down to three different categories. Well, if, if you want a simplistic answer, uh, the, the, as I just explained, I have no way to prove it. But instinctively, in broad dynamics, and this is not about any specific local community, but broadly for the world, I believe the aid sector has been bad. It has had a it has a bad impact on the world, and that is based on an analysis of long term dynamics, um, on an analysis of the the development of countries and the development of uh, international connections between the West and, and, and these countries. Does that mean that there are no societies or communities that have uh, benefited from it? No, of course there are. There have been a lot of communities, a lot of people's lives are probably have been saved because of aid projects, probably. But overall, uh, my gut instinct tells me that the overall impact has been bad. However, I don't have numbers to prove that. Nobody does in, in neither direction. So to our listeners, based on your assessment, should they stop donating to to development organizations? Well, the, the, the thing is, um, if it makes you feel good, uh, do it for your own uh, well-being. Uh, but if, 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 if so, think carefully about what kind of organization you donate to. Uh, there are differences between organizations. I personally... Um, have stopped any of that. I mean, I, I used to in a long time. I don't donate to NGOs and, and anymore. anymore. I've been too burned by what I've seen from the inside. Um, but there are differences. Some organizations are much more locally led, right? By local communities, wherever you go. Uh, we mentioned Kenya or Tanzania that have uh, local communities that just say, we want, natural, uh, we want financial resources to help us develop our agricultural sector or to help us develop our schools. That is a very different story from an N uh, compared to an NGO in London who just, just decides for Tanzania or decides for Kenya what they should do and how they should behave. So if you're going to donate, um, do make a distinction between what kind of NGO is out there. Those that are controlled by local people, owned by local people, are very different than um, those who are controlled by people in Paris or London or Madrid. As an economist, just from a very simplistic macro perspective, um, if you've got one region where there is 
an overabundance of labor and not sufficient capital, and another where there is an overabundance of capital but not sufficient labor, what you want is an exchange between those two regions. So the, 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 we go back to international cooperation. The idea of capital flowing to uh, places where capital is not as abundant makes a lot of sense to me. And if you want to be part of that, that in itself, the idea makes sense. Just know that there's this very corrupt and very problematic sector in between your ability to do that, in between you and them and your ability to connect to that local society. Um, and then from here, we only have one more category left. Uh, what is the future? Um, so we established international cooperation is good. Um, that international well, development aid uh, in a top-down matter is not... But where do we take it from here? If the West can stop being like Mother Teresa and just be open about what they want, in a way like China is doing, then that would be very, very, a very positive step forward, saying we're not going to hide behind this aid concept as such. Uh, we're not going to hide behind the idea that we're supposedly doing good for the world. We just want natural resources from the Democratic Republic of Congo. And we're going to get that through providing... Uh, money for infrastructure, just like the Chinese do. That would be a much more open, clear kind of relationship. And it would make them actually more competitive because currently what you see is that sub-Saharan governments are getting completely fed up with Europeans and their their their, their morality twisted with um, self-interest. And here we get to another essay I wrote in that aid and development class I took uh, with you, um, where I believe I made the point that this increased competition um, between China, the West, and other players um, is creating a better situation locally because now locals can choose do we want the Chinese giving us money in exchange for resources, a very clear-cut deal. Um, we've seen, I mean, hopefully, we have seen what happens in other countries with this. I mean, Sri Lanka is the most recent example that comes to mind. Or do we want the Western money that comes with all these strings attached? Or maybe is there another player, another big donor that is coming around the corner wants to give us money exactly it's interesting that what you see often at the local levels that the chinese are not very popular at the local level i mean small community level the chinese are not very popular in because they don't really interact with locals they don't really benefit the local communities very much but at a governmental level the chinese government is 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 really effective at partnering up with um African or Asian governments because they they can just do business and that's 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 a much that competitive spirit um, is something that the West can learn from and that would actually benefit the world. Uh, just say this is what we offer, take it or leave it. If the Chinese offer something better, you can go with them and you can see that Africa has benefited from this this dynamic, right? It has benefited from this um, competitive new environments that didn't exist before, before it was neocolonialism or nothing. And, and, and now it is actually choices that are being offered to, to local governments. Um, having said that, there are, of course, still people who want to just be in contact with local communities without a political, geopolitical interest. There are local, there are NGOs, there are students in Germany, in Spain, in who wants to connect to local populations elsewhere. And if you do that, please do so. But be open about how it benefits you and to be open towards yourself. Be clear about it. Be explicit. This is 
what I'm getting out of this relationship and I'm grateful for myself to be able to have this relationship because it helps my career, it helps my experiences and it's great if the locals also get something out of it because then it's a cooperative kind of connection. That's something that we should only encourage, right? But let's not pretend that you go as an 18 or 19 year old, you go to Costa Rica and you go there out of the goodness of your heart and people should congratulate you for the great work you're doing. It's you're there for you and be open about that. And that you then fully understand the dynamics of Costa Rica, the rainforest and everything else after going there for three months, a week, or I mean, maybe even a few years. It's It only comes after years and don't, years of... Don't make any claims. Uh, as a general rule, don't make any claims about understanding other people. I think I think understanding ourselves is difficult enough. You know, let's, let's not try to pretend that we understand others. Uh, and this seems like a great moment to end today's conversation on Development 8. If you have any questions, comments, or regards, make sure to send us an email to jhasenstab at raiagroup.org. We will try to incorporate them in our following episodes. Thank you very much to the listeners for joining us today. Make sure to join us again next week when we burst the Western bubble. That is it from my side. Balder, which closing quote did you bring for us today? So I decided to go back uh, to the very foundations of our Western society, Socrates. A system of morality which is based on relative emotional values is a mere illusion, a thoroughly vulgar conception which has nothing sound in it and nothing true. 